Uh, now I have a dilemma as I welcome you. Should I move everybody up front for the first two cues? Do you feel lonely, Ken? <laughs> well, anyway, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to our church. And just a few announcements. Um, we're going to celebrate communion next Sunday morning. So come prepared. And the thought occurred to me in our prayer meeting, men's prayer meeting next door, that people are worrying about all the the viruses and the vaccines, and and it hit me that I got vaccinated 38 years ago when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that that's the ultimate in gene therapy, because 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true. I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And if you had known me 39 years ago, you would be saying, Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Anyway, <laughs> it's so good to have you here to worship. Good morning. Let's stand and take our hymn book and turn to number 175. We'll sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Isaiah 7:14 says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. We'll call him Emmanuel.
ahead and get one, if you will. We're going to start the Advent season by having someone lead us in congregational to uh, uh, make uh, statements here and uh, someone to light as well. If you look on the front side of your worship folder, it kind of explains why we do Advent. Essentially, it reminds us, of course, of the coming of Christ, hence the word Advent. And we think of Christmas time, as our culture might call it, as uh, Christ's first Advent, and we are certainly looking for his return, which we call the second Advent. For, so for now, we're celebrating this. Historically, the church has done this for hundreds of years. We're not sure exactly how this tradition developed and came about, but in the end, we're using it essentially as an object lesson. If you look in your worship folder, it gives you actually a place to say some, a couple things as congregation, as Neil will be the leader here. There's some texts of scripture that are mentioned. You don't need to read those, just those are references for you. Perhaps you might want to look it up later. Those of you with children at home, you might want to use this kind of as a devotional to talk about these truths that we talk about today. So if, uh, and um, I'll have um, Neil and Helen help us today, and then uh, when they're finished, then I'll pray for us as a congregation as we begin our worship today. So uh, without further ado, if, if Neil, will you go ahead and lead us in congregation, you be prepared as well, and Helen's going to light the candle for us. Send the one who is the light of the world. People walked in the darkness of sin, but the prophets told them of God's promise. Someday God would send the light, one who would shine in God's glory. The prophet Isaiah said, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen. Jesus is the light of the world. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that we are able to gather together as a congregation today to worship you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, indeed, who is light and indeed is the light of this world. You have brought us out of the domain of darkness into, the, into your domain, the domain of Christ, described as light. I pray during this particular season, Lord, that we might express that in our lives in a, in a real and tangible way, to have this truth, this life, this light within us, as we know and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in each one of the believers, I pray, Father, that this would be a season beyond sentiment, but it would be really a spiritual time for us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. I pray that you would use all the various elements uh, for these little ones to experience and to see, to see what we treasure most of all, enjoy the good gifts that you have given to us and that we are then able to give to one another because they come from your hand. And I do pray, Father, that 
all of us would indeed acknowledge that, confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray for this season in particular for those that have family members who don't know Jesus Christ. May they become aware of the beauty of his glory, see the transcendent light of who Jesus Christ is. May indeed be a light to their soul. Um, I pray, Father, that we would overflow with this great truth, um, find ourselves satisfied increasingly in you, and enjoy this season in which we reflect and think about and celebrate your breaking into this world with the glorious light of life that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand again and turn to 179 in our hymn books, and we'll sing, O angels from the realms of glory, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. 179. Jesus 
morning church what a beautiful day to praise the lord this morning amen this morning we're going to read two uh, two scripture passages uh we're going to start out in psalm chapter 83 uh, if you don't have your bible this morning that's going to be page 492 in your pew bible again psalm chapter 83 if you don't have your bible this morning your pew bible that's going to be page 492 um after we read this passage, we'll move to the New Testament, and uh, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. You can just kind of follow, follow along with me there. But uh, uh, very thankful this morning to uh, be in the house of the Lord, and, and uh, I hope every day that we, that we keep this season of thanksgiving in our hearts, and uh, daily we remember what we're thankful for. And I'm very thankful for a church that esteems uh, the Word of God and, and esteems the Savior. So there's a lot of nonsense going on and a lot of quote-unquote churches around us this morning, so I'm glad to hear the gospel of, of Jesus Christ preached and to be around a body of believers that uh, desire sanctification and holiness. Uh, I'm just going to read, uh, I really can't say it better than Dr. MacArthur, so I'm just going to read his kind of introduction to this passage. Um, he says, This psalm, a national lament that includes prayer and, impre and imprecations, may be studied with a map since several individual national enemies of Israel's are noted. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verses 1 through 30 may record the specific historical events prompting this psalm, though some Bible students believe that the nations mentioned are only symbolic of all of Israel's enemies. The psalmist begs God to rescue Israel from its enemies as he had done so many times in the past. Uh, section 1, we're going to see a plea for help. It's going to be uh, 83, verse 1. Uh, section 2, we're going to see a protest against Israel's enemies. That's going to be verses 2 through 8. And in the third section, we're going to see a petition for divine judgment, verses 9 through 18. So again, let's read the word of God together, Psalm chapter 83. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Salah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin in the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest 
and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Let me say that one more time. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Let's flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Beautiful, familiar passage. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray together this morning. Father, our hearts are full this morning, Lord, with the realities of your divine truth that you've given us. Lord, your word is so powerful and clear and penetrating. It makes the case of the gospel in every arguable way that Jesus rose from the grave. We thank you, Lord, for validating the death of Christ on the cross as a satisfaction for our sins as a lost people apart from you. We thank you, Lord, for the abundance of blessings that you've given us that we don't deserve. We're totally depraved apart from you and our sin, if not for Christ. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to to gather together and worship your name. We ask, God, that you empty our hearts, Lord, of ourselves and fill us with your fullness. Lord, help us to esteem you in reading of your word and praising of your name this morning. Lord, we ask as the holidays grow closer and closer that you give us more opportunities to preach your word to our family members. Let our families see a a set-apart people, a people not of this world, not living for this world, but living for the world to come, living for Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to preach and live the word faithfully in our homes in front of our children. Lord, help us to be godly examples that glorifies Christ daily and points our children to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we ask that you help us to be servants in all aspects of our lives, servants of the gospel, servants of one another in the church, servants at home and in the workplace. God, again, I thank you for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition. We ask, Lord, that you continue bringing more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness and have a hunger for your word. We want to exalt your name today, Lord, and ask for you again, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds first in worship and song and then through the preaching of your word. Lord, if there's any hard heart here today, God, we ask that you break that heart and save anyone that doesn't know Christ. We ask, Lord, today that you bless this offering and help us to use it wisely for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.
you, Amber. Let's stand once more and turn in our hymn books to number 98, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. John 1.16 says, We have all received grace after grace from his fullness. Oftentimes we don't think about the fact that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. God is actively engaged, not some of the time, but all of the time. If he wasn't, the world would completely fall apart. Jesus is God. He is the one who spoke and the worlds came into existence. He is the one who continues to speak and the world stays together. Christ had to teach that to his disciples because he, as you can find from this passage in Philippians 2 we alluded to earlier, that Christ took on human flesh. His glory was veiled 
in this incarnation. He took on a real human flesh, God then incarnate, and that's unique. His disciples could see his physical humanity. They couldn't see his sovereign glory. But they would get a few glimpses of it, and some of it was just in his teaching. If you remember in John chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples that I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you will know that I am he. I am he means he is God. I am. In chapter 14, he would instruct them the same idea. I have told you this before it takes place so that when it does take place that you would believe. Believe what? That he is indeed God. John chapter 16, same phraseology that he says in chapter 16 verse 4, remember that I told this to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but I'm saying it to you now so that you will know. Jesus didn't speak these things just because he knows about the future, some sort of seer of what might happen. He's saying this specifically because he has ordained all things that would come to pass. He is the I am. He is God. He holds the future that is all things together by the word of his power. He doesn't learn about what might happen and what people might do. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter testified to that very thing when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And a lot of people said a lot of good things about Jesus. But they're not good enough. Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign king of all. Peter replies, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16. In our text, in the end of John 18, and then moving to chapter 19 in the Gospel of John, what you're going to see here in, before this Roman governor, Pilate, and the mob, the Jewish authorities, and the vast number of people, both Jew and Gentile, that are part of this story, these actual events that took place in history... Pilate is very frustrated about what's going on. By this time, he's exhausted by the Jews and the mob that's in attendance to this Roman trial. He's gone back and forth with him, with the people and the Jews, if you will. He made at least three declarative statements in our text, and I would say that's just representative of the ongoing idea that Pilate makes. Notice verse 38 of chapter 18. He declares, this is a legal declaration, I find no guilt in him. 
it's repeated in 19 verse 4, I find no guilt in him. And then 19.6, he says the same thing. I find no guilt in him. Pilate here is desperate to release the mob, the, release Jesus, but this mob will not have it. They want someone who is truly not guilty to be guilty. They want to put him to death. Pilate's words, in many respects, are profound and worthy of consideration. Matthew records this very event and states it this way in Pilate's retort to the crowd in Matthew 27, 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And the whole group of them in unison say, let him be crucified. This one who has no guilt, this would then be the greatest injustice of all. And they're all in agreement. This is the best thing that they can think of to do, that is, to crucify the one who is not guilty. And you know the rest of the story, Pilate does ultimately give in. He relents to this mob. Well, why does this happen? Isn't there one in the crowd who would say, he was just declared not guilty at least three times, if not more? Well, why are they all going to then crucify him? Yes, God has ordained all that would come to pass. Even the greatest injustice of all time to accomplish the greatest mercy and the greatest gift or grace of all time. Merry Christmas. God was in complete control, including these acts of unrighteous men. You remember even Caiaphas who tried Jesus in the Jewish trial just prior to this where they delivered. He had said something previously about Jesus Christ and unknowingly God had ordained his very words to be prophetic. I'll remind you of it. It's from John eleven forty nine. Caiaphas who was high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all. You don't understand it, that it is, far, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Both Jew and Gentile. And here out of this ungodly man who delivered Christ over to Pilate, God had even ordained for him to say something prophetic. Now in context before Pilate, 
Pilate gives a vital question that we should consider even this day in spite of the source. And that is simply this, what shall I do with Jesus? I would challenge you that go beyond this circumstance and situation and maybe even internalize it yourself. Not just as an evangelistic opportunity to call people to say, what will you do with Jesus? But really, what will I do with him today, tomorrow, and the next day? Let's examine the text in context here, backing up to verse 38 of chapter 18, and we'll go through the next chapter in verse 16. Let's get a running start, if you will. Verse 38 of 18, Pilate, in responding to Jesus, sarcastically says, what is truth? <laughs> and I have to always stop there and just recognize the irony, right? Here, he's looking at truth incarnate. He can't see it. What is truth? Jesus, in any case. But after he says this, then, Pilate, <clears throat> he's going back and forth with the Jewish leaders that are called the Jews here. He goes back outside to him. He says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. This is what they want to do with Jesus. Barabbas, of course, is a robber. Chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, And take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And Jews answered him, We have the law... And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. 
But the Jews cried out, if, if you release this man, you're not, a friend, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone of the Pavement. Near Meg, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I pray indeed we will hear and heed your word. May you speak to us in ways in which we need to hear for you. I pray that Christ would be truly exalted in our life and that we would answer the question, what would we do with Christ this day? And exalt him as Lord and Savior and King of all. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's important to understand this again in the context in which it's given. Here is the Lord of glory, God incarnate. He's declared not to be guilty by the Roman governor. The Jews accuse him of claiming to be the Christ and the Son of God, and yet they don't examine if these claims are true, if they would hear what he said before it happened, right? And if they would actually recognize his miracles, which they all affirm, as Nicodemus testifies to, if they would hear this Roman governor who has examined him on multiple occasions and looked at every charge, this is the one who is absolutely innocent. So the question I have to ask, and I look at this text, then why doesn't Pilate, at least, then at this point, Release him and have Jesus just walk away. He wants to release him. He's trying hard. He's trying different things to accomplish that. But isn't he the governor here? Can't he just make this declaration just one time and it be over? The ultimate reason this is happening as we mentioned before, Christ is establishing his kingdom. That's what you have to see. And the first stage of it, if you will, you want to think of it that way, the first step is a spiritual one. He will have to make a spiritual connection to be able to gather subjects into his kingdom. He will have to transfer them from the darkness, the domain of darkness, into the domain of light. If that doesn't happen, there will be no subjects to this kingdom. He will be not a king of anyone. 
he will have to spiritually move those that are in the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. And he'll do it by sacrificing his own life, accomplishing the atonement, the payment that is required for the wages of sin, which is death. He will provide this for all who will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a mysterious doctrine, I understand, and difficult for many to to grasp. We call this in theology the doctrine of compatibility. It isn't just because these are neat ideas and words, but this is what is deduced by Scripture. Whether we can put it all together or not, Scripture teaches this, and this, therefore, we do believe. We understand Jesus is the sovereign God. He says, I am He. All of these are coming to pass because He has purposed it. Listen, and if you want to look, you can. We've alluded to this before, but it goes right with this and understanding what's going on, the backdrop of what's happening here in real time. The apostles, particularly Peter, preached in Acts chapter 2 concerning this circumstance, Acts 2.23, I'll read it for you. He talked about this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge, and foreknowledge, should I say, of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the lawless men, including Pilate, the Jews, the whole mob that said crucify, crucify, are guilty for doing what their hearts desired, but nevertheless, it was God's definite plan to happen. Jesus would be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the fact that you can't grasp how that works, that's fine. My mind isn't as big as God. I do believe what he says. Because he's glorious. And Jesus is accomplishing his purpose. When it says foreknowledge here, it doesn't mean just knowing the future. Of course he would know the future. He's God. But the foreknowledge has to do with a foreordaining. That's how it's associated with this definite plan. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. Judas did exactly what was in his heart. That's what he wanted to do. God didn't have to twist his arm to make him do that. But yet he would do the he would uh, he would um, orchestrate this greatest evil act to accomplish the greatest good. God is always in charge. It's your world falling apart. You understand? He's holding it together. It may look like it's falling apart. It's not. In the couple chapters later. A continuation of that same idea in the book of Acts and the preaching here, 427. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. That's what we're reading about in chapter 18 and 19. (coughs) Truly, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod 
and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This wasn't happenstance. This was going to happen. God had ordained it to happen. These that are involved are guilty. They're guilty. But God would use their evil act to accomplish the greatest good. Pilate's guilty. He's judged Jesus not guilty. And yet he violates his own code of ethics for a number of reasons. Please the mob. He's had trouble with these Jews in the past. We've noted that before. This environment that he's in, he's concerned. He, he declares Jesus not guilty, but yet he's concerned with these in the crowd that might object to him releasing Jesus. He's had trouble with them before. He's tried to kind of poke the bear, if you will, with them by bringing some icons and Roman deities into their presence and got in trouble for it. Everything he's done on that order, he's lost, but he keeps trying to some degree. And so I guess that's a sense as we look at this context here of what's going on. Pilate's trying to resolve the situation and he's not doing a very good job of it because he's dealing with <clears throat> the wicked heart of men, which, hard, which is very hard to understand. It doesn't make sense. I don't know, one writer of scripture said, who can know it? It's, it doesn't make it sense at all. Look at verse 39 of chapter 18. Here's Pilate's first attempt in trying to resolve the situation that he's in. He knows Jesus is not guilty, but he knows the crowd wants to kill him. So he's going to appeal to their rational thinking, their sanity, and come up with some sort of reasonable solution. I have to give him credit. It does seem reasonable. Look what he does. He's, he says, well, hey, we've got a tradition at this time of year. I release somebody to you. So, you want me to release this one, the king of the Jews? And they cry out, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. And John reminds us that Barabbas is described here as a robber. We don't have much on the historical uh, reflection on this particular custom. Apparently it was from what we can deduce. It was one of the things that some of these provincial governors might have done to just try to promote a certain amount of goodwill, sort of like a governor in our day that might Provide somebody a pardon, if you will. Perhaps it gets them sort of political favors by doing such things, at least with certain parties. 
Pilate wants to release Jesus, but he doesn't want to upset the mob. He doesn't want to upset this mob that's being fueled by these religious leaders, so he comes up with what he thinks is a fail-safe plan. He will give them a choice between the most vile and the most virtuous. That's the choice. You want the most wicked or you want the most righteous? Mark, in his gospel, tells us a further, a little bit more about this Barabbas. He says he was a rebel in prison, Mark 15. He, com- he committed murder in the insurrection, if you will. He was what would have been described at that time as a zealot. Matthew chapter 27, Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. This wasn't a nice and a likable guy. It's a very wicked guy, even among the Jews. They, they would have liked Rome to fall, but not in this way. This is a, a violent, notorious, ruthless person. Some commentators have reviewed this, and according to some uh, texts, ancient texts, it is very likely that Barabbas' first name, by the way, and we can't know this 100%, but from what we can tell from some historical writings, some manuscripts, that his first name was Jesus. Hebrew, Joshua. And if that's true, then this contrast is even more notable thinking in that terms. And the question is this, which Jesus do you want? Right? That was a common name. Which one do you want? Do you want this insurrectionist, this violent man, or would you have this one over here who is virtuous? You want the political insurrectionist, or you want the savior of the world? Do you want death? Do you want deceit? Do you want darkness on one hand, or do you want life? Someone who is truthful or legitimate in all he does? Or as we describe with this candle, light. The the contrast between the two can't be any greater. The choice is clear, isn't it? But what do the people say? Verse 40. They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. This is insane. The wickedness of man's heart is beyond reason. How could anyone make that choice? And yet it's done all the time. I won't have Jesus to be my king. I'll put someone else on the throne. And I don't care who you choose to put on the throne of your life. I'll tell you what his real name is. It's Barabbas. He's a robber. If you have taken the time to look at one of my favorite tracks, I'm sure all of these could be better, but this is not bad. And by the way, it has a, a nice one for your kid as well. We have them on the back table if you want to pick one up. For the kids, it just puts it this way. Who will be king? Because that's the point. 
who will be king? It answers the question, really, what shall I do with Jesus? In the one that's written for adults here, it makes this contrast, too, in the presentation of the gospel by saying two ways to live or <laughs> two authorities to be subjected to because you'll either be one or the other. Who will sit on the throne, if you will, of your life? One way is to reject the king, the true king, Christ, the virtuous one, and the other is to receive him. This is insane for them to make this choice. He's appealing to, that would be <coughs> Pilate, is appealing to their, their sense of reason, logic. But none of that will overcome the sinful heart of men. Faith comes by hearing and hearing about the words of Christ. It's a miraculous work in somebody's heart. Left alone, this is the choice that people make. What shall I do with Jesus? Insanity. I'll crucify him. It's the opposite of I will submit to him as king, as Lord. Why, you ask sometimes, and I do from time to time, why? Why would all of them... The whole mob, the Jewish leaders, and even the Roman governor who violates his own decree of not guilty. Because the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the light, dispels the unrighteousness and the darkness in the heart of men. And when exposed, they love evil, they love darkness rather than light because they can hide their own wickedness and evil. This is a moral rejection of Jesus Christ because of a sinful heart. That's the problem. That's the insanity. That's why people choose the kinds of things they do, why they would even make up stuff to disobey the clear teaching of God's word because they love darkness rather than light. They would rather crucify him. It did happen historically, and God uses it for his purposes. But it also reveals the wickedness of the heart of men. So Pilate fails in this first attempt to free Jesus just by appealing to rationality and reason. His second attempt you'll find in verse 1 of chapter 19. He just tries to appease the crowd. All right, a choice between light and darkness didn't work so well. How about this? We just humiliate him and beat him up a little bit. That's first one. Plan B. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And then note here, John <coughs> includes this whole section where the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Instead of the, a beautiful diadem around his head, they take his crown of thorns. And they put him in a 
purple robe. And they come up him to him and say, Hail, King of Jews. They're, they're mocking him. They strike him with their hands. You don't strike a king, but they struck him. Oh, hail, King of the Jews. Bam! This is to humiliate him. Now, let me stop here and just say the exact chronology of what's happening is a little difficult to establish. So we kind of talked this morning in Paul's class. When you look at the Gospels, by the way, there's four of them for a purpose. They're not trying to write it from a Western mindset. And this is part of the problem with historical criticism. They're not trying to write it from our mindset. They're writing it in their time, in their world. And their point is thematic. The statements that they include are true, but it, it, it goes to point out a theme of each of the gospel. Otherwise, you'd only need one. You would need four. There's four for a purpose. And so if you want to get together a chronology of how the events unfold and what all went on, you have to stitch together all four of them. And when you do that, they fit like a glove. And even then, it doesn't include every little aspect. As John himself would say at the end of his gospel, that, look, if you put everything that Jesus did, the, the whole world couldn't contain those reference books, right? So, but what is here is what is needed. They're not following a typical Western pattern of thought. In fact, John assumes the reader of the Gospel of John would have read the other Gospels by now, right? And they would have been familiar. We're, in our world, we're not quite as familiar. We have a lot of other stuff to do. I, I digress. I highly recommend reading all of them. Nevertheless, when you look at these together, you'll discover really what's going on here at this particular event in a, chron in a chronological way. What John is getting at here in his gospel at this stage after Pilate fails to win by reason, he's going to then try to mock Jesus beat him up a little bit, bloody his nose, if you will, and see if that satisfies the crazed crowd. They want him executed. But right now, Pilate is not sending him to the cross. He wants to release him. Now, the text says that he flogged him. At this period in time, there are really, and I think it's easier to think of it rather than use the Latin words because most of us haven't been homeschooled in classical conversations. So I'll make it easy on me. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, rather than get into the Latin, I'll just say it this way. At this time, there was three levels of flogging, beating if you will. D.A. Carson comments, the level, and let's just call it level one, it's a less severe beating meted out for relatively light offenses, such as a, being a hooligan, for example, 
And it's often accompanied by a severe warning. Now, in our culture, we don't beat people like that. Some other cultures today still do. But this is like beating him um, relatively uh, light, but enough to inflict some wounds and bruises and maybe bloody him up a little bit. And that severe warning is given. Level two is much more brutal. It would have been administered to someone who was an actual criminal, whose offenses were thought of as more serious, and so therefore the beating would be a little bit more serious. That's level two. Level three is the worst of all. Level three is a terrible scourging, and I'll quote, it's one that is always associated with other punishments. And that's a key phrase there. This level three is associated with other punishments, including crucifixion, and I would add usually crucifixion. This last form, this most severe form, I'm calling it level three. The victim was stripped, tied to a post, and beaten by several torturers. In the Roman provinces, the torturers were soldiers. They were beaten until they were exhausted, or, or their commanding officer called them off. For victims who, like Jesus, were neither Roman citizens nor soldiers, the favorite instrument was a whip whose leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone, lead, or other metal. The beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died. Eyewitness record, records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. Understandable. The flogging, three different levels. I think it's helpful to note. You look at this text here, I think that in Pilate's first attempt here in chapter 19, he's using level one. Maybe level two, but probably level one. This is not the most severe beating that could be done. In fact, look at Luke uh, 23, just to get piece this in context, because John doesn't mention Herod, not because he didn't know about it, but like Caiaphas, we would have known about it from the other Gospels. And so here, Luke 23, kind of gives you the scene a little bit more filled out of what's going on initially in this step with Pilate. He's, a, he's administering a form of pain to create humiliation in which the victim would recover and survive. In Luke 23, you're, drop down to verse 5. Here you have um, the accusation against Jesus. He's teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Galilee would have been up north. Verse 6, when Pilate hears this, and he asks if he was a Galilean. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I can get somebody else to deal with him because Pilate doesn't want to be engaged in this confrontation. He wants to get rid of Jesus. So he hears 
<clears throat> that he does belong to Herod's jurisdiction, verse 7. So he sends him over to Herod, who had himself been in Jerusalem at this time. So Herod <clears throat> was the governor of the northern area, Galilee. He happened to be in Jerusalem, as most of them might be during this big time. And he said, oh, well, this is great. I'll just pass him over there. I'm done with him. But when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad because he wanted to see him. He had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sort of sign done by him. That is, he had heard about him doing miracles. He just wanted to see, he wanted to see this wonder worker, if you will. No recognition of who Jesus actually is. He questions him at length, and Jesus doesn't respond to him. Chief priests and the scribes, verse 10, they stand by and vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with, no this, contempt and mocked him. That's what's going on. Then they do the same type of thing, put splendid clothing on him as a way to mock him. And then they send him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, verse 12, become best buds. <laughs> They were friends from that very day. Because before that, they were kind of like enemies with one another. But now they really had the same dilemma. Herod doesn't know what to deal with him. He just mocks him, rough him up a little bit. And Pilate then calls the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Verse 14 says to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, Behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done. I will therefore punish and release. That's what Pilate is doing here in John 19. He is punishing him so that he can release him. Both Herod and Pilate, that's all they want to do. They want to mock him. They want to humiliate him and release him. Jesus will receive, by the way, this third level. He's going to get beaten again. I think that he may have been humiliated and beaten to some degree on multiple occasions is what I'm getting at. The most severe, he will receive that. In fact, you'll recognize that Jesus, when he's delivered to be crucified, that's how John's gospel, uh, this section ends in John's gospel, it is that part of that crucifixion is first severely torturing them so that they will die quicker. So that they won't remain on the cross for weeks, if you will. They, will, they are so bloodied and torn apart that they will not survive. Jesus will get that scourging. But this one, first beating, is a beating of humiliation. The next one will be of even greater torture. Here's how Isaiah describes this very event that, by the way, did we say that God had ordained all things to, that would happen? Yeah. Isaiah, Isaiah 53. You listen to it. You, you remember this text. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. That is, this would not be, he was, he, he was mocked and humiliated. This would not be someone, oh, look, they're, they're, this is my hero. No, that's what they're trying to do to him. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, though, and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed and stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's moving forward to the cross. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I hope you, you get the picture here. All of this rejection, all of this sorrow, all of this grief, all of this um, not being esteemed, the affliction, smitten and stricken and ultimately crushed. That's what you deserve right now. I say it kind of flippantly when people ask me sometimes, how are you doing? And I'll say, better than I deserve. Because it sounds kind of funny. But I really mean it. And I do get reminded of it from time to time when I think about what Christ went through. You see, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in absolute disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, the king of glory, took my place. All, all that's going on is certainly what we deserve. And this is what is being afflicted on Christ because he will bear our grief. He will bear our sorrow. He will bear our crushing. Pilate is engaged in this mockery which Christ will bear on our behalf. He recognizes back to our text in, verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 4. He recognizes that he finds no guilt. So after humiliating him, roughing him up a bit, he brings him back out and declares no guilt. And he tells him, behold the man. Again, almost another prophetic statement. Here is the man, behold him. But they cry out, verse 6, crucify him, crucify him. They just want him gone. Humiliation isn't enough. Bearing some of the pain and the chastisement, that's not enough. What will I do with Jesus? They want him off the scene. They want him gone. Third aspect here that I have time for is then Pilate then becomes superstitious about the whole thing. He tries to pass off his responsibility to Herod. That doesn't work, but both he and Herod are having a good time punching Jesus a little bit, mocking him. They're in cahoots with that. But he tries then to get the Jews then to take responsibility of this matter. 
once again. He says, verse 6, crucify him. He, he tells them to do it. I find no guilt in him. He wants to walk away. He had already told them that before. Remember in the previous chapter, verse 31, he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Their own law would have been, um, yes, blasphemy that would have been stoning. And then they cry out, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate was making it lawful. He gave them permission to do it. They could have stoned Jesus. They did stone Stephen shortly thereafter. They tried to stone Jesus before, but remember they were unsuccessful. They couldn't do it because Jesus is sovereign. Did I say that at the beginning? He's in control of all things. In verse 32, in case you miss it, chapter 18, it tells us why they rejected that offer from Pilate. He said this is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It never fails. It was to fulfill that very word that Jesus spoke and to show what kind of death he was going to die. He was, control, he was controlling the very time, the very moment he would die, and the means and how he would die. I tell you what, if you don't learn anything else from this, learn one thing. Whatever Jesus says is true. You can believe him. Now go this week and, and read John 14 and weep. He says he's coming again. In my house, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming again to take you where I am. That'll take care of a lot of trouble in the world if you just believe Jesus. The Jews go back over again, focusing on their code of law. 19 verse 7. Well, we have a law. According to our law, you ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. They're responding to, they're just ignoring his offer, Pilate's offer to have, for them to take matters in their own hand. They're just reminding him, even though Pilate sees him not guilty, he's, they see him guilty because now they appeal to this idea that he's claiming to be God. And here's where what I would say the superstitious nature of man then kicks in. When Pilate hears this, verse 8, notice here, he is even more afraid. He, he's fearful not in a reverential but in a superstitious way. He's panicking. Man, would I like to comment on news programs right now, but I'll, I'll hold off. You can make your own application. I've got to get to the text. They're, they're in absolute panic. I mean, it's like the disciples in the boat. They've got Jesus in the boat. The storm's going on, and they're panicking. Yes, because they're not trusting him. This unregenerate man is fearful about the wrong things. Oh, there's things to have some concerns about, for sure. But there's something much bigger. They're engaged in myth and legend and lies. 
They think, I would say that Pilate thinks perhaps now when they use this term son of God, he's thinking, well, is this some sort of demiurge that's come along? Is this some, like one of the gods that are coming along? So he rushes back in, verse 9. See, get this idea of Pilate. Now he's, he's fearful in a sense of that, that he's panicking in a superstitious way. And he asked Jesus, again, where, where are you from? And Jesus lets him stew in his own panic. You haven't figured that out yet? And Pilate then grabs him and says, oh, oh, won't you speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Did he? No. He never did. No one does. Jesus explains to him, you don't have that ultimate authority over me unless it had been given you from above. That is from God. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The idea is, Pilate, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You, you have this role. And God is in control of all. Pilate is shaking in his boots at this point. Verse 12, it's emphasized here, he's really now trying to release him. He's superstitious. He's afraid. He's afraid for the wrong reasons. He wants nothing more to do with Jesus. We've noted from the other Gospels that he's been warned by his wife about this one. He doesn't want to deal with it. But he's kind of trapped in some regard in verse 12. The Jews then cry out. They can sense he's ready to let this guy go. If you do, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They go back to that king issue again. They're reminding him, Pilate, of what he actually fears the most. Pilate thinks Caesar's an absolute authority. He has the fear of man in his mind, not the fear of God. There's already been, as we mentioned, a lot of trouble in the land. Pilate wants to keep his job. He'll eventually lose it. They all do. But right now he wants to keep the peace because he's fearful that he'll lose his position, his power, and privilege. I'll tell you what Jesus would have to say about this. I'll just quote Luke record in Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you, fear him. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. That's the right kind of fear that you ought to have. But Pilate fears man. He doesn't fear God in a reverential sense. And so when he hears these words, verse 13 of chapter 19, he then goes and makes an official statement about the sixth hour. He says to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And they answered, We have no king but Caesar. They didn't submit to Caesar. Who's the king of their heart? Themselves. That's who they submitted to. That's the highest allegiance they really have. They feign their allegiance here just to accomplish what they want. They want Jesus to go away. They want him to go away. So they're going to kill him. And then think that they will put him out of the way. They will not have to be subjected to his authority. They can keep their own privilege, their own power, their own kingdom. And should I tell you this? It is a kingdom of death. It is a kingdom of darkness. It is a kingdom of deceit. It is a kingdom that will be absolutely destroyed. So they deliver him, verse 16, over to them to be crucified. The most unjust act in all of history. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, explains this this way in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. None of the rulers of the ages understood this. What? Who Jesus really is. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How will somebody come to know and understand that? Paul will explain in the first part of chapter 2. He says, when I come to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's how it comes about. A supernatural work of the power of God in which those that hear the very words of truth respond, Jesus is Lord. And those that don't, in some form or fashion, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, maturing here in the sense of those who hear and heed the very word of God. We do impart a different kind of wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, if you will. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What will you do with Jesus? What shall I do? Confess Jesus as Lord. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. I do pray the hearing of it will cause us to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. I pray anyone who has seen the glory of Christ will indeed confess him as Lord and live daily in light of that confession. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Take a moment now, beloved, where you're at, to think on these things. If you have the response of prayer to make, do so directly to Christ. You don't need a mediator. We have one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus. You can speak to him. If you need further uh, prayer or talk afterwards, you see one of the elders, myself, or one of the others would be glad to spend some time with you. Take a moment privately where you're at now. Father, thank you for the glory that has been manifested to us in Christ Jesus, particularly this season of light and life. I pray that our days would be spent in light of the glory of Christ, and may it shine and overflow to all that we meet. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. May the Lord be your refuge and fortress. May the God in whom you trust, may the Lord command his angels concerning you to guard you in all his ways. May his answer, may he answer you when you call and may he be with you in trouble. May the Lord rescue and honor you with long life. May he satisfy you and show you his salvation. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.